Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. A few years ago, there was a plan for 100 Syrian refugees to resettle in Vermont. But a halt to the resettlement program meant only three refugee families arrived. First time, uh, everything is hard, a new place, a new people, new language. Uh, now we used to everything. From the New England News Collaborative, this is next. We'll look at the process of resettlement for one Syrian family. And we'll get an update on deportation deferrals for immigrants with serious medical conditions. Yeah, my name is Jonathan Sanchez. I'm 16 years old. And I have a, I have a cystic fibrosis. We'll also consider the stranglehold that New Hampshire keeps on its first-in-the-nation primary and how one Republican long shot is talking to voters there. When I say to people up there, you know, I'm a New England Republican, they know exactly what I mean. And that's not a dirty word in New Hampshire or Massachusetts or Vermont. Plus, we'll hear the voices of Mainers working the sea on the far edge of America. It's next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks for joining us. In August, some immigrants with serious medical conditions were told by U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Service that they would no longer be able to stay in the country to get treatment the agency would stop giving out most deportation deferrals. A few thousand immigrants across the country, many of whom arrived in the U.S. on visas, got these denial letters. They were told they had 33 days to leave the country or a deportation proceeding would start. But after pushback, the Trump administration reversed course. Shannon Dooling, a reporter at WBUR, broke the story, and she's followed it through the reversal. Shannon, welcome back to Next. Thanks for joining us. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. So for listeners who haven't been following the story closely, explain, first of all, what is medical deferred action? So medical deferred action is a a policy um, that's been utilized really for decades um, that allows certain eligible immigrants who, as you mentioned, may have entered the country on a medical visa or a tourist visa uh, to proactively come to the government and say, I need to extend this visa, Um, you know, whether it's because my son fell ill while in the U.S. or I had a tragic accident while in the U.S. Uh, But basically they're asking the government to, to remain here to receive treatment that in many cases is, is life-saving treatment and is also treatment that's not available in their home country. And so what this policy allowed was for people to stay for um, an extra up to two years in the country while receiving treatment. Back when you first reported the story and the uh, medical deferred action was halted, who at that time was no longer eligible? Here in Boston, uh, we know of about 19 or 20 cases uh, of of folks who received this denial letter uh, from USCIS. And one of the the cases that sticks with me is a a 16-year-old Jonathan Sanchez. He and his parents um, came to the U.S. a few years ago on tourist visas from Honduras. Um, Jonathan has cystic fibrosis, which, of course, is a a chronic uh, condition. And... Uh, He actually has a a sister who passed away from cystic fibrosis uh, years ago in Honduras. Let's hear a little bit from Jonathan himself. 
if they deny the program that I need to go back to my country, then I'll probably die. Because in my country, there is no treatment for CF. Doctors don't even know what's the disease. The only ones who can help me are here in the United States. So, John, uh, mm. you can hear the just raw emotion, obviously, from a 16-year-old who's, um, you know, all of a sudden being thrust into thinking about what it would mean to no longer be able to get the treatment that uh, that keeps him alive. When you broke this news back in August, Shannon, how did you find out about this change? How did you find out that the, the Trump administration had made this, made this alteration? Right. So I uh, got a phone call from a, a Boston area immigrant advocacy group uh, who said, you know, a couple of our clients have been receiving these letters and they all have the same language. They appeared to be form letters um, and they're just denying uh, this request for medical deferred action, which, you know, is not uncommon. These requests do get denied. (laughs) But what was new about this letter was the fact that the government was saying we are no longer processing these requests. And because of that, you are being denied. So that was what was alarming to the advocates. Um, And if not for that advocacy group, uh, you know, noticing this um, and, and giving us a call, you know, this may have just sort of fallen through the cracks. After the story breaks, there's a period of confusion, which then leads up to a reversal of this original decision. What happened? Why did the Trump administration or officials within this department decide to reverse course and, and allow these medical deferred actions to, to go forward again? Right. Well, we don't know exactly why. Um, we can surmise a few reasonings. Um, so there ended up being a congressional hearing on this. The uh, House uh, Oversight Committee, uh, through a subcommittee, held a, a congressional hearing and asked very uh, pointed and tough questions of members of U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services and Immigration and Customs Enforcement. And they got no answers. And um, I think that that was particularly frustrating uh, for members of Congress. Um, There was a lawsuit filed here in Boston Federal Court by the ACLU of Massachusetts uh, asking for the reinstatement of this procedure. One of our congresswomen here in Massachusetts, Ayanna Presley, she, you know, took a particularly strong and vocal stance on this. What's so troubling about this beyond the cruelty of it is the lack of transparency around the process. There was no public comment period, not even a public announcement. You know, it's tough to say exactly why the Trump administration decided to reinstate it. But what we do know is that um, they sent out letters shortly after the congressional hearing, uh, which was in September saying that uh, the process would be up and running with USCIS and uh, that it would be decided on a discretionary case-by-case basis. So, of course, still no guarantee that everyone who applies will will be able to stay here while they're receiving medical treatment. But it it is now, again, an option. Shannon Doolin covers immigration for the New England News Collaborative and for WBUR in Boston. Shannon, thanks so much for the story. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you, John. Now let's revisit a story we told you about a few years ago here on Next. It's about a resettlement program in Rutland, Vermont. That city was planning to welcome 100 refugees, most from Syria, with more to follow. But a halt to resettlement by the Trump administration meant only three Syrian families made it to Rutland. VPR's Nina Keck caught up with one of those families. 
The first time I met Hazar Mansour, her husband, Hussam Al-Halak, and their two kids, we had to speak through an interpreter. Reporters were covering their every move, and they were living with Greg and Maureen Schillinger, a local couple who helped them get settled. Oh, hello, Hi. This visit feels completely different. Hassam and Hazar have remained close with the Schillingers, and all of us crowd into the Syrian family's small apartment in Rutland. Hazar and I sit on the living room couch, and I'm struck by how relaxed everyone is, and how much 12-year-old Leanne and 9-year-old Mohammed have grown. A third child, Daniel, was born last year. He bounces a ball on the carpet at our feet. So, can you talk a little bit, Hazar, what it was like? What do you remember when you, those first few weeks and months in Rutland? I mean, there was so much attention on all of the families coming. Tell me a little bit about what that was like day to day for you. Uh, In first time in Rutland was very hard for us uh, because uh, we came from uh, city center. We was in Damascus and also in Turkey and was very crowded here, very quiet and very calm. Big, uh, big different. Hazar is 37 and stylish. She wears a tightly bound black headscarf and large dangling earrings. She speaks Arabic, Turkish and French. But before coming to Rutland, didn't speak any English, which she says was frustrating. But uh, thanks for my husband, because my husband encouraged me uh, to speak, especially on the phone, because on the phone is very hard for English. But my husband told me, you must call, you must call. <laughs> you know, first time uh, everything is hard, a new place, a new people, new language. Uh, and new mother. <laughs> yeah. And now we used to everything. In Damascus, her husband Hassam worked as an accountant, and Hazar was able to stay home with the kids. Family was nearby. They tried to wait out the war, says Hassam, but the bombs got closer and closer. In January 2015, they fled, first to Turkey, then two years later to Rutland. You know, every new place, you know, Everything beginning, it's hard. But I had, when I came here, I had goal here. Go to, you know, uh, my goal here, go to accounting shop and to get uh, accounting certification. But before he could get that, they needed to find an apartment, get the kids settled in school, learn English and pay the bills. So Hussam got a job at a local bakery. I was muffin man. (laughs) Yeah, you know, I like, I like this job, yes. So you made muffins? Yep. Is it early morning? Yes, early morning. Very early. Yeah, very early, yeah. Like, like when did you, when did... Yeah, I remember I wake up like 4, 3.30, 4, you know, start work at 5 a.m. Walk to work. Walk to work. I remember. Two nights a week, friends and local volunteers watched the kids while Hassam and Azar took accounting and English classes together at Community College of Vermont. My wife helped me first time go to YouTube, for example. Uh, YouTube? YouTube, yeah. And uh, uh, translation from Arabic to... English. It was slow going at first, they say, but both got their accounting certificates. Hazar has put her career on hold to care for Daniel. She got a driver's license, and the family's second car, a red minivan, is parked outside. 
Since February, Hassam has been working in the tax department at Casella, an accounting job with full benefits that he's thrilled about. Considering how divided Rutland was over refugee resettlement, I asked them if anyone had been disrespectful or rude since they arrived. Have you had any negative hey, situations yeah. here? No, every people, nice people, you know. I know some people don't like Syrian refugee. Maybe because we are new here or because um, any reason, but any people don't bother us. All people is very nice people. Yeah. Two other Syrian refugee families moved to Rutland, but they didn't want to be interviewed. Friends and neighbors have told me they've settled in well. Both of the husbands have jobs. Each family bought a car. The kids who are old enough are in school. One of the families welcomed a new baby in May, a little girl named Tala. As with most immigrant families, the kids acclimate the quickest. That's been true for 12-year-old Leanne, who's learning keyboard, and Mohammed, he's nine and likes basketball. The kids go to birthday parties, do their homework, play sports, and hang out with friends. And now we are very busy, <laughs> like, like all people. Yes, busy. Yeah, I understand. It's a different kind of busy than they were used to in Syria. In Syria, it's busy, but not like here. More activity. More activity here, especially for kids. Mm-hmm. Gymnastics. Yeah, basketball. gymnastics, basketball, swimming. Things have gotten even more hectic now that construction has started on a new home the couple is buying with help from Habitat for Humanity. The house is going up just down the street, and Assam works on it with volunteers every Saturday. Habitat uh, make, make for us our dream to settle, finally. Because we are very tired from all the time move, all the time move. Finally, we find good place to settle, and uh, I think we 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 never think uh, move from Rotland. Yeah, I think this uh, uh, magical place for us. <laughs> yes. Leanne and her brother Mohammed sit nearby smiling and nodding. When you go down the street and you see the empty lot where your new house is going to be, what's that like? I just feel inside really happy. I just feel really happy. And I, feel, I just feel proud of myself and my parents because like, that's everything they have um, done for us. They just try to make us happy and everything. Yeah. Uh, when I come back past the house, I feel so excited to get in the new house because I see a building and I saw a lot of people voting for us, like um, helping us, which I love. The family hopes to move in next spring. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Nina Keck in Rutland, Vermont. Big story, yeah. Oh my God. I, I'm very happy. We've driven by the lot. Yeah, I'm very happy. Coming up, a new podcast looks at how New Hampshire has held fast to its first-in-the-nation primary election and the power that status gives its residents. Plus, we'll talk with former Massachusetts Governor Bill Weld. He's challenging President Donald Trump for the Republican nomination. It's next. It's next. 
Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters, who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. As presidential candidates gear up for the primary election, there's one state that they'll all come back to again and again and again. Candidate Bernie Sanders is stopping by several New Hampshire New colleges Hampshire, today. Very special. You remember those primaries. Day to file for the New Hampshire And to win those most important primary of New Hampshire. Campaigning hard in New Hampshire is a given. A primary win there is often seen as a bellwether for what's to come. But you know, that wasn't always the case. A new podcast called Stranglehold from New Hampshire Public Radio looks at how New Hampshire gained all that power in presidential elections and held fast. Host Lauren Children is here with me to talk about the podcast. Lauren, welcome back to Next. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. In the first episode, you take a look at how New Hampshire clinched this first-in-the-nation primary election. How did it get in the first place? Well, you know, we've been first since people really didn't care that we were first in, in 1920. And and it was basically a shifting of two other states. There were two states that were before us. And then they just decided for whatever reason to move their dates. And so then since 1920, we've been first. And then in the 70s is when other states started to be like, oh, you know, that looks pretty good, that first in the nation primary. You guys get a lot of attention, a lot of media hitting you up, a lot of attention from candidates. And with that comes a lot of power. And so through the 70s until I would say... Uh, maybe 2008-ish, we had some pretty big fights we had to wage to keep this thing first. And it kind of grew from a jealousy thing between states into a larger existential question about representation. Because as you know, New Hampshire is much whiter, older, uh, more educated, often wealthier than the rest of the country. And so for most of the history of this 100-year first-in-the-nation primary thing, we've had to keep a really tight grip. And there have been a couple ways that we, as New New Hampshire have done that. But uh, Secretary of State Bill Gardner is usually the hero of the story when people tell the story of how we stayed first. And so we couldn't do a podcast without taking a look at Secretary of State Gardner, both because of that kind of legend and also because, you know, he, while some people see him as legend, other people view him as a problem because of the way he runs his office. And a lot of people don't see that side of him because this idea of him as this political hero is such, it really takes up a lot of space in the, you know, big narratives that get told about the primary. So that's where we started. We're going to listen to a segment of your second episode in just a minute, but first, here's some setup. Before 1976, campaigning in New Hampshire wasn't actually a must. In fact, a lot of candidates didn't even stop there. But when Democrat Jimmy Carter ran for president, all of that changed. He was virtually unknown at the time, but his team, including strategist Hamilton Jordan, devised a plan to campaign hard there, and they thought that this would launch them toward a presidential win. Let's listen. I want to take you through some of the Carter team's strategy for how they take New Hampshire by storm. Because this is where one of the myths behind the New Hampshire primary that people love to celebrate really begins. It's the idea that anyone can come to New Hampshire and work hard enough, look enough voters right in the eye, and that that was enough to become president of the United States. That started right here in the Carter campaign. Okay, so what would this look like on the ground in New Hampshire? First, they needed a team of people who are devoted to the candidate, potentially borderline obsessed. Campaigns are run on two things, love and hate. If you love somebody, you'll do whatever they want, and you'll work as hard as you can. If you hate somebody, you'll drive through a mountain to get them. Passion 
is what wins campaigns, passion. I mean, the kids that were working for us were working 20, 22 hours a day. I mean, they believed, and that's that's the secret. And when Billy Shaheen mentions kids, he's not exaggerating. The New Hampshire team was full of rookies. Most of them had never worked on a presidential campaign before, Shaheen included. Everybody who was anybody was with somebody else other than Jimmy Carter. I mean, I was a nobody. I mean, I was just a nobody, and it was just me and, and a handful of people. That handful of people included Carter's actual family members. This was a new thing and something that Carter's team was really committed to. They covered early states with his family. His second oldest son, Chip, literally moved to New Hampshire, all the way from Plains, Georgia. Was that like an exciting thing at the time or were you like, were you into it? Uh, Obviously into it, but it was more scary than exciting at first. Why is that? Well, I failed speech three times in college, and I was expected to make at least a speech when I got there. So that was nerve-wracking to start with. (laughs) Okay, so they've got the New Hampshire team, made up of mostly rookies and relatives, and they're starting to understand the competition. Next, they needed their candidate to meet New Hampshire voters. And obviously, there was no internet, so there was no going live on Instagram from your kitchen while drinking a beer or filming YouTube videos from your tour across your home state. If candidates wanted to introduce themselves to voters, they literally had to do it in person. It's an essential part of New Hampshire campaign lore, but it's also a matter of logistics. This is a small state. Only 82,000 people would vote in the 76 Democratic primary, hardly enough to fill some big college football stadiums. And New Hampshire ain't Texas. You can drive from the bottom to the top of the state in less than four hours. So visiting grocery stores or main streets is actually efficient. I just want to speak to you. I'm Jimmy Carter running for president. Oh, yeah. I've seen a picture on the paper. Carter was pretty good at this. He'd look voters right in the eye and he would tell them, I will never lie to you. Well, New Hampshire is a unique state. It's the only place in the nation where we have a chance to uh, campaign on a personal basis just the candidate and individual voters in uh, colleges and high schools and grammar schools and beauty parlors and barbershops and factory shift lines and restaurants and on the street. And uh, this is what I've done, and it's the kind of campaigning I like. Jordan had a feeling Carter would go over well in New Hampshire. He wrote in the memo that this rural state could be a good fit. Quote, I believe that your farmer, businessman, military, religious, conservative background would be well-received there, end quote. And at the end of a long day of glad-handing or pressing the flesh in New Hampshire, Carter would sleep in supporters' houses. I mean, would it be easier if he just stayed in hotels? Oh, God, yes. Ellis Woodward was Carter's scheduler in New Hampshire, so he was responsible for setting up Carter's sleeping arrangements. It's quite something else to find, you know, where he's going to stay if he's staying in a private home. And then there's also balancing... Well, there might be two or three people who want him to stay at their home and then figure out how you're going to explain to the other two people, well, he's not staying with you, right? I mean, it's all sort of juvenile, but you do have to do that. This whole sleepover business started as a cost-saving measure for the Carter campaign, but it became another thing entirely. Nixon's presidency had been famously called the imperial presidency. And now, here you have a guy running for the same office, sleeping in strangers' spare rooms. George McGovern probably did it. Eugene McCarthy probably did it. And uh, but they are these are sort of things that happen that then become you know sort of parts of you know they get woven into the story. And once they start to get woven into the story, well, you know, what's the candidate in the campaign going to do? I mean, you're not going to sort of close the chapter on that. I mean, you have to continue doing it, whether it's annoying or not, right? 
Of course you have to keep doing it because the people who got to host Carter loved it. Imagine waking up early to put the coffee on for a potential president. And you better believe those people would tell their friends about it. And word would spread about how Carter was the perfect house guest, very gracious, very neat, always made his bed perfectly. Just the sort of image Carter's team was hoping to project. But something else was happening here, too. Having Carter sleep at your house, it wasn't just good for him. It started to change how New Hampshire voters would think about themselves. We feed breakfast to future presidents. We're important. We make history. Hosts would prominently display Jimmy Carter slept here plaques in their homes. Even now, I just saw a real estate listing for a house in Laconia, New Hampshire. And in the description, right after new toilet and half bath, it says a beautiful historic home where James Earl Jimmy Carter slept during the 1976 New Hampshire Democratic primary. Each mention, a small bit of proof that New Hampshire is special and it deserves to be first. Now, what about when Carter wasn't in New Hampshire? The campaign needed to hammer home to voters this image of Carter as an honest, good guy. And to do this, Hamilton Jordan came up with a new, frankly, kind of silly idea that the next best thing to the actual candidate was a plane full of sweet, honest-to-goodness Georgians who knew Jimmy personally. Well, I know I had one man that um, listened very politely as I told him the story of Jimmy Carter and handed him the brochure and told him why I was there. When I finished, he looked at me and he said, young lady, I have not understood a word you have said. And I had, you know, I probably was talking pretty fast in my Southern accent. And, but he said, but I will take the brochure and I will read about your friend Jimmy Carter, and I thank you for coming. Introducing the Peanut Brigade, a group of around 100 Georgians, people who knew Carter from church or from when he was governor, who flew to New Hampshire and eventually other states to campaign for their pal. Dot Paget was known as the den mother of this crew. It was January 1976, so the primary was just a month away. And when they land, the campaign gathers the brigadiers together to share some key New Hampshire intel, like what to wear in the snow, how to drive in the snow, because, you know, January in New Hampshire, not for the week. And many of these Georgians had never been this far north. Kathy Rogers was a Carter intern at the time. She's now a New Hampshire state representative. And she remembers this meeting. Well, they didn't want to waste their time. They wanted to get out on the streets, which was good. But then within half an hour of getting out, we started getting phone calls. They were lost. They were stuck in the snow. They were cold. They were, it was like every imaginable thing happened that you could imagine happening. There are so many stories like this. Georgians without proper New England footwear, slipping on ice, falling through snowbanks, not knowing how you're supposed to walk through a snowy yard to get to someone's front door. Some woman's got her fur coat on. I mean, you know, mink fur coat because that doesn't go well in the Hampshire. But she's doing it anyway because she wants to do it. So we send her out to the richer neighborhoods. Someone told me a story of a peanut brigader almost driving into someone's garage. And apparently the Georgia lieutenant governor's wife went missing for a while. But they were so friendly and they were so charming. And they were, I mean, you know how Northerners melt with a Southern accent. And they were all charming about it, too. So they found as many troubles as they found themselves in, they found people to rescue them because people couldn't resist them. A woman whose husband was mayor of Plains, Georgia, 600 people, you know, 
went to knock on a door and she was a very refined southern lady and she knocked on the door and these people opened the door just a little bit and she told them I'm up here from Plains, Georgia to ask you to vote for my friend Jimmy Carter for president and she stopped for a minute but she said but I am so damn cold she said I don't care who you all vote for and the people the people laughed and invited her in for a cup of tea, cup of coffee. She sat around the kitchen table, and they were so intrigued with her story, they invited some of the neighbors in. Carter's 1976 New Hampshire primary campaign gave New Hampshire one hell of a gift. Its best argument for why it should be first, why it deserves this privileged status, Here you had a powerful image of participatory democracy. Now the expectations were set for candidates. You can't just announce you're running and hope the New Hampshire voters come to you. You have to hustle. You have to answer real questions and show voters who you really are. And to this day, when New Hampshire's first to the nation primary is threatened, that is what our biggest defenders turn to. You want to take away the power of real people to pick their president? New Hampshire voters are savvy. They know who's the real deal and who's bullshitting them. Once and for all, why not the best? New Hampshire, they say, makes better presidents. That's from the NHPR podcast, Stranglehold. Okay, so Jimmy Carter won the Iowa caucus, and that was when he was really launched onto the national stage. But he needed to win the New Hampshire primary to keep up the momentum. The rest, of course, is history. Carter won the primary and then went on to become president. Lauren Chuljan and Jack Rodolico both host the podcast Stranglehold, and Lauren's back with us to talk a bit more. Lauren, maybe you can talk us through what changed over the course of this 1976 campaign that made the people who were behind Jimmy Carter's campaign think that this was the strategy, this was the thing that we needed to do in order to launch ourselves to the presidency. Yeah, certainly. So a lot happened in politics leading up to that race. I mean, the 68 conventions, people who follow politics will remember they were very chaotic and for many reasons. I mean, of course, there was the shooting of Martin Luther King, Bobby Kennedy. I mean, it was in Vietnam. There was there was a lot going on then. And Democrats had put up a candidate who hadn't won any primaries and basically was a candidate, Hubert Humphrey, that they preferred. And voters, mostly Democratic voters, of course, were like, well, wait wait a minute. We didn't pick this guy. We were looking for someone who was much more anti-war. And so Democrats came together and realized that for so long, party bosses had really had a big say in who chose the nominee for the party. And then they were realizing, you know what, I think normal people, normal people got to have a say in this thing. So they changed the rules. And it wasn't until 76 with Hamilton Jordan and the rest of the Carter team where they realized that that was going to create a huge opening for somebody like Carter, an, an everyday kind of guy, a peanut farmer, a governor. Yes. So it wasn't a total unknown unknown. And they figured if there's an opening for real people and real primaries, because there were more primaries added to the calendar at this point as well, another big change. If real people who are voting in these real primaries and caucuses are getting a say then a real candidate who can make, you know, make a difference in people's minds when he meets them face to face, that person could really have a shot here. How much of this is myth and how much of this is reality? I mean, people think that what happens is people go and they talk to almost every voter in New Hampshire and every voter in New Hampshire gets to talk to 10 or 20 presidential candidates. And that's how the entire thing is decided. Lauren, is that really how it works? I mean, how much time do you have? So, <laughs> so I mean, it, it was. I mean, I would say that it certainly was. And it's something that I think 
think our biggest offenders always turn to because that's democracy at its finest, they would say. And, and, and that's what makes better presidents is these real deal interactions with real people. Now, is it that way anymore? I mean, it's not the same. I mean, Cory Booker was sleeping in people's houses like Jimmy Carter did, but his team sent a press release around about it. It wasn't to save money. It was, you know, because they knew that that shtick worked. And so I, I would say that there are a lot of factors for this change. You know, the Internet, like uh, cable TV is a huge one. And so... The debates this cycle are a huge, huge part of that change where the DNC is setting these thresholds for polling and fundraising. And so that has a winnowing effect that takes away the power of winnowing the field that Iowa and New Hampshire once kind of held to themselves. It's a very fun podcast, and there's a lot of interesting history in there as well. It's called Stranglehold. Jack Rodolico and our guest Lauren Children are the co-hosts of this NHPR podcast. Lauren, great to talk with you. Congratulations on the podcast, and thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Great to talk to you. Not all the campaigning this primary season is on the Democratic side. A few Republicans are challenging President Trump, and the one who's best known to New England is Bill Weld, the former governor of Massachusetts. Weld is fiscally conservative and socially liberal. He ran for vice president as a libertarian in 2016. And as you'll hear, he says that's the sort of thing that plays well among New England voters. He's trailing Trump pretty badly in the polls, but he's spending a lot of time in New Hampshire talking to voters about issues like immigration and climate change. Governor Bill Welt, welcome to Next. Thanks for joining us. Hey, John, my pleasure. Thank you. I'm wondering what you're hearing from voters in New Hampshire as you go and talk to them. Maybe something different than what you might hear from voters in other states around the country. Uh, I, I go into a lot of diners in, in New Hampshire, and they, uh, there's a lot of big ones. So you can shake 200 hands if you go to three diners uh, at around 9.30, 9 or 9.30 in the morning, still the breakfast hour. Uh, so I chat with a lot of people, and I shake uh, a lot of hands and uh, most people, when I say the name Trump, they roll their eyes and even do a thumbs down. Uh, so, you know, uh, and yet there are polls taken of uh, New Hampshire Republican Party leaders and people who voted Republican in the last five primaries to come out a hundred and nothing for <laughs> Mr. Trump. So there's a major disconnect between uh, what I'm seeing on the ground and uh, these polls that are done with what's called a very, very tight screen. Even if we grant that there's a, a fairly large margin of error, the party is different than when you were governor of Massachusetts. It is far more conservative, and this president is far more popular than even a president like Ronald Reagan. To, to what do you ascribe that? How has the Republican Party that, that you've been a part of for such a long time changed? You know, it, it, the leadership up there projects as very conservative because it's, you know, it's Trump's organization. So it, it projects as whatever Trump is. Uh, the, the New Hampshire Republican Party, uh, members of the party, uh, taken as a whole, are still 65 percent pro-choice on the issue of reproductive rights. Uh, that may not be typical of southern states or other states in the country, but it is true of New Hampshire. And when I say to people up there, you know, I'm a New England Republican, they know exactly what I mean. I mean fiscally conservative and socially uh, open and uh, tolerant and welcoming and supportive. That's what New England Republican means, and that's not a dirty word in New Hampshire or Massachusetts or Vermont. A lot of the conversation about immigration, of course, has to do with 
uh, Donald Trump's desire to build a border wall to protect the southern border. There's a northern border issue as well. And by policy, uh, border patrol officials can police uh, an area 100 miles south of the Canadian border, in fact, 100 miles away from any border, and that includes all of the boundaries uh, along the United States. Some people in Congress, including uh, congressmen from from Vermont and other states, have suggested that that should be narrowed down so that uh, CBP officials don't have so much purview very far away from the border to just search people or arrest people. What do you think about ideas like that? Yeah, no, I think that whole 100-mile rule is ridiculous. It swallows up the entire state of New Hampshire, and and I would see it uh, repealed. Uh, I'm kind of a Fourth Amendment hawk anyway. I really don't like uh, people having the right to search people with no reason other than that they're carrying a a badge. That really goes against the grain for me. I come from the libertarian side of the Republican Party, meaning that I I like individual liberties and think they should uh, triumph uh, over uh, the government when, when there's a clash there. Uh, last thing for you, sir. You talk about uh, your environmental record in the past. You believe in climate change. Maybe you can talk about how a, a libertarian politician views the things that we should be doing as a society to combat climate change, because an awful lot of the things that have been put forward by municipal, state, even federal governments suggest big government action in order to combat climate change. So how do you square that with your beliefs as a libertarian? Well, the one exception to my libertarianism is environmental enforcement, because the economies of scale of cleaning up the environment are so huge that you just simply can't rely on individuals uh, or individual businesses to amass the resources necessary to do that. So in terms of climate change, I think we do have to put a price on carbon uh, upstream. So for oil and gas companies, it would be at the wellhead. For mining companies, it would be at the mine shaft. For uh, Uh, LNG importers, it would be at the loading dock, and that would be paid by people who are introducing carbon uh, to the economy. But the government would not keep the money. The government would redistribute the money to by, for example, uh, repealing the gas tax, uh, repealing the diesel tax, maybe uh, using the rest of the money, and there would be a lot uh, to give payroll tax relief uh, to lower income taxpayers. That way you might get some conservative votes uh, for the gas tax repeal and some more liberal votes for the uh, uh, the uh, payroll tax relief. But as you can see, I've thought this through. I don't think anyone else in Washington has thought it through. The most that anyone on the Democratic side has said is, this is how many trillion dollars I'm going to spend. Bill Weld is the former governor of Massachusetts. He's challenging President Donald Trump for the Republican nomination for president. Thank you, sir, for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you, John. We'll do it again. Coming up, a sound exhibit heads to one of the easternmost towns in the U.S. We'll hear from the residents of Lubeck, Maine. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate and clean energy. Support also comes from the Melville Charitable Trust. You know, when I was younger, okay, you know, I, I grew up in North Lebec. You knew everybody. You knew everybody. Crazy, we used to have, I don't know how many kids up there having fun and everything. You knew, you knew, you, you knew everybody. And, and I used to mow lawns up there. Um, 
My, my father owned a blueberry granite. That's Bubba Eaton in an audio clip from The First Coast. It's a multimedia project based in Maine. The project started when Galen Koch got a grant to renovate her parents' old Airstream and turn it into a mobile studio. Now for the past year, Galen's been traveling to Maine communities to record oral histories and collect photographs of year-round Mainers. When we talked with Galen, she was in her mobile studio parked by the Lubeck Narrows in Maine. Galen, thanks for joining us on Next. Hi, thank you for having me. So where exactly is Lubeck and what's it like right now? So Lubeck is the... um easternmost town in the United States. So it's, uh, if you are on the main border, it's about, I would say, five and a half hours down, we say down east. Um, and it's right on the border. I'm actually looking right now at the Franklin Delano Roosevelt Bridge, which is the bridge that connects Campobello Island in Canada to Lubeck. Galen's in Lubeck to present a sound walk and exhibit. It features residents she interviewed back in May of 2018. And we're going to do an abbreviated radio version of her exhibit with you today. First up, we're going to meet Amanda Lyons, a rockweed harvester and clam digger, among other things. I do most of the clamming during the winter. Um, I've gone down in snowshoes to pick five to ten pounds just so I had dinner in the middle of winter. Sometimes out to three o'clock in the morning so I could pay the electricity bill so my electricity doesn't get turned off. Being a fisherman working the seasonal stuff is a very hard time and the thing is that's what this place sees. Oh, I've done, you know, I've done various jobs. I've worked construction. I've worked on salmon cages, you know, salmon farming for five years, not too long ago. But uh, I always go back to digging clams. I don't know why. Just something I've done, you know, for years. You know, you're your own boss. There's nobody to bother you. You know, there's no office. And... Of course, the hours change, you know, the tide changes an hour a day, so, you, you know, as the set of tides go, it gets later and later in the day, right? But uh, you're your own boss. You can you don't have to deal with anybody. That's David Brown from this project that we're talking about called The First Coast. Before that, we heard from Amanda Lyons, and, and the creator of this exhibit, uh, Galen Koch, joins me now. And I, I'm wondering, it seems like there's a common theme here amongst at least these two people you talk to, and it's probably pretty common throughout the town of, of Lubeck. These are people who work multiple jobs, and their jobs are really determined by by the tides, by the land that they have, and probably by a lot of other factors that they have no control over. Yeah, I think that's really true. Um, Washington County especially, is that's what a lot of the people do here for work is seasonal work, um, whether it's blueberry raking. Um, you could think some construction is seasonal work, clam digging, lobstering, it's all just varies, you know, kind of month to month what people are doing. Well, I, I'm wondering, though, if you could talk about that balance you're hearing from people between something that, that to an outsider sounds incredibly romantic, but they're also talking about it as uh, a means to an end. It's the way that they're paying the bills going out there and, and, and harvesting or, or clamming. And it seems like that's both of those things are true for these folks at the same time. Yeah, I think that Amanda really hits it on the head where she says, uh, you know, she's going out and 
digging for clams some nights at three in the morning just to pay the electricity bill. It's hard. It's also incredibly hard on the body. Um, And I think that's something that we don't think about a lot of the time. Like, you know, Dave was telling me a lot about just he used to clam two tides, but he's just gotten older and he his back can't really take it anymore. Bending over like that and doing that all the time. The next voice we're going to hear is is Shelly Tinker. Maybe you can explain who she is before we hear her. Yeah, so Shelly, um, she owns um, Corey and Corey Automotive, and her family goes way back in Lubeck. There was a winter where we kept losing fishermen, kept getting the gear stuck on the bottom, dragging the boats down, and, and fishermen were dying. We lost like seven in one winter around this area, and that's rare to lose that many anywhere. Piss me off. <laughs> There's gotta be something we can do. What is going on, you know? So I was sad, and then I was mad, <laughs> and then it's like we got to do something. We gotta at least show these people, you know, that what they do matters. And so this, this, we need a memorial to them. And I wasn't the only one that thought this. When I went to the town office with my idea, Julie Keene was there, and David Klein from Cutler was there, and they were all asking the same thing. Can we put up some sort of memorial? So, you know, we got the approval from the town of Lubeck, and we just started a committee right that night. Um, and seven years later, working pretty hard to raise I don't know, how much did we raise? About $150,000 to get the memorial in place for the fishermen. I think, I think the fishermen feel um, that they got a little respect for what they do. I know, I know they pass it every day when they go to work, so, you know, I hope that they um, realize that we understand what they do. My husband's a fisherman, and he does it every day. So, yeah, we, we get it. We get how important it is, and I want them to know that we respect that. You know, that that scallop on your table has gone through a lot to get there. L- listening to Shelley's voice just there gives me the, the thought that a lot of people in this town probably wanted to tell their stories or wanted to have the outside world or someone listen to the fact that, you know, their job is hard and it's it's dangerous. Is that part of why you wanted to do this project, just to hear from people who probably don't get a chance to explain what their lives are like? I wouldn't say everyone wants to tell their story because there's a lot of resistance to it. But, um, but that being said, my experience is once people start to um, and realize that it is there is a story to be told in just living a life um i think that's one of the biggest revelations for people is just like oh wow i do have a lot of stories and also when you live in in maine and town this kind of a community like a working waterfront community sometimes i think it's easy to think that it's not so like crazy that you go out and fish every day because everybody else does or a lot of people do. Um, I think there's like a courage to the to that work and a courage to doing that seasonal work where you just get up and you 
have to do it so you do it. Let's hear one last piece of tape from Bob Peacock. He's a harbor pilot, and he's worked all along the main coast. I love being on the water, lake or ocean, either one. You know, it's nice to wake up every morning and see the water. And you know, I go to New York a lot and, and other places, and you know, I don't like being in the city. I really don't. You know, it's fun to visit for for a few days or go to a show or do something, but you know, it's not like getting up here every morning. It's heaven. As my pilot boat captain uh, Ralph DeWitt said once, you know. My worst day on the water is better than your best day in a cubicle somewhere, you know. And there's some truth in that, I'll tell you. There really is. Sounds like driving around an old Airstream talking to people is a pretty good uh, pretty good choice, too. And I, I appreciate you talking with us. Galen Koch is lead producer and founder of The First Coast. It's a multimedia project that captures the stories of year-round Mainers. The exhibit and sound walk will be in Lubeck from October 5th through the 14th, and she's going to be holding another event in Jonesport, Maine, coming up this winter. Galen, thanks so much for joining us here on Next. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. You can find our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. Next is produced by Morgan Springer. Our digital producer is Carlos Mejia. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. We had help this week from Emily Quirk. Music this week is by Todd Merrill, Goodnight Blue Moon, Binger, and Audio Jane. I'm John Dankosky. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Radio, WBUR, WSHU, and The Public's Radio.